Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to West Indies on 99.94 Cricket Every Day. My name is Mashal St. Patrick Hewitt, one half of the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. And with me as ever is Santoki Nagalendran, the other half of the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. West Indies on 99.94 is your new home for West Indies cricket content and will be dropping into your podcast feeds on YouTube or on the 99.94 app. And we'll be doing that several times every week. So like, share, review, rate and subscribe. And thanks for joining Cricket's Conversation. Today on West Indies on 99.94, we're going to be asking the biggest question of them all. Is it time for West Indies to disband? Santoki, take it away. Yeah, and you know, the people demanded it. They wanted a part three to the future of West Indies cricket. So just like the Godfather films, we're here with a part three. And this is asking the pertinent question, should West Indies cricket disband? Now, Mashel, I'm going to go in a slight divergence. And we'll need to talk about what's happened since the World Cup has happened, um, the T20 World Cup. So initially, we were minding our business. We've been eliminated. Ricky Ponting, obviously former Australian cricket legend, came out and said it was a disgrace that West Indies had exited the competition in the first round, which is fair. You can take that on the chin. We moved on. We were just there again. No business in the World Cup, nothing going on. When Rahul Javid, the head coach of the Indian cricket team, out of nowhere in a press conference, decided to take shots at West Indies cricket. He was asked about whether it would be beneficial for Indian players to play in other franchise leagues because obviously, famously, they only, they're exclusive to the IPL. They only play in the IPL. They don't play in the Big Bash or the CPL, for instance. He said no, because these franchise leagues often pop up during the Indian domestic season and he wouldn't want to go the route of West Indian cricketers and play in franchise leagues and neglecting the domestic circuit. So essentially, he was essentially saying India did not want to follow the decline of West Indies cricket. Now, this seemed to come out of nowhere, Mash, but I'm interpreting it as these guys, these players that are in the age bracket or former players, of growing up at a time when West Indian cricket was the pinnacle of cricket. It's during the 70s and 80s. All these players idolised West Indies cricket. So this anger and these uncalled for shots about West Indies cricket are essentially, they're almost like a compliment because it's almost done out of love. They're essentially bitter at how West Indies cricket has declined over the years. So the fact they care about it, I think, has translated as anger, is my interpretation, at the fact that the great institution of West Indies cricket, as they know it, has declined to a point where we're exiting World Cups in the first round, we're not performing well. What, what did you sort of make of these comments? Because they did sort of come out of nowhere. I totally see where you're coming from, and I do get that argument. But part of me feels that Dravid also made those comments because it was a convenient get-out clause. Like it's 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 easy to dunk on the West Indies. Like we we know we know we're dreadful, largely speaking, right? And I just thought the point he was trying to make could have been made without using the West Indies as a reference point. Because I guess 
if you're going to talk about weakening the Indian team overall and T20 leagues and so on and so forth, reference another team with the same resources as India who, who may have fallen on hard times. But, but here's the catch. There isn't another team like that. So that's why I felt it was a cheap shot to go for the West Indies because we're not even, we're not even in the same pool. We're not talking about, we're not talking about two sides who are level pegging who, who suddenly have just gone downhill in the recent years. West Indies have been on the downhill track for the last 25 years. And this is the thing. This is why I didn't agree with this comment, Santoki. Us going downhill predates T20. It's, it's, it's not so I, that's why I feel like I don't get me wrong I agree with you that Dravid was making the point from a point I, he was, he actually was making that point out of love I agree with you I don't think it was about let me just denigrate West Indies completely for the sake of denigrating West Indies but in choosing to use West Indies as his reference point he's also missed the point yeah. is I guess what I is what I guess what I'm getting at because there is no analysis that you can give of West Indies that starts and ends with T20 because our decline started before the year 2000 and in fact if for those who, who are yet to listen if you go and listen to the Caribbean Cricket Podcast I think it's episode 70 or 71 when we 68 even when we got Jimmy Adams on Jimmy Adams himself said he saw the decline in West Indies cricket back when he was playing so that's from that's from the early to mid 90s in fact, he said he saw it in the domestic system in the late 80s. So I just feel like Dravid in this context, for me, represents an outsider who doesn't fully understand the dynamics of what's gone on in West Indies cricket. But on the surface level, it is a good example to use because if you only look at West Indies from a surface level analysis, then that's an easy reference point to use. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it was an easy deflection for him in terms of rather than focusing on why India had lost in the semi-finals, he was sort of like, hey, at least we're not as bad as those guys over there, essentially, was what he was what he was doing. Now, it's interesting as well to note, because as you, you kind of alluded to it, the sort of, we're not on level pegging with India, and he sort of ignores, if you want to go into detail, even looking at T20 exclusively, the fact that if you're an Indian cricket player, you're well paid for playing for the Indian national team, millions. Even if you play domestically for the Ranji Trophy, you're well paid, you can earn a living. In the West Indies, we're not fortunate enough to have those options. So essentially, a system has create, has been created, an ecosystem where West Indian players have had to go to the IPL to make money. So it's sort of ignoring the, the nuances of, of that. And that's a whole, diff we could have a whole episode on that debate in and of itself. But Mash, I guess what, we're, what I'm trying to say is the fact that these two legends have criticised the West Indies fans, have been cussing out the West Indies non-stop for the past four weeks. A lot of them have been calling for the end of the West Indies team, as we know it. Every island for themselves, every nation for themselves. It's, it's time to disband the West, West Indies cricket. Where, where do we want to start? Where do we want to start with this one? Should the West Indies disband, Mash? This is the question of the podcast. I'm going to go straight to you that one. West Indies cricket is a waste of time. We should rip up <laughs> all the pitches and plant cassava and ganja. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, that's where we have to start. That's where we have to start. Um, I think a couple of episodes I made reference to um, Chris Daring's article. I'm going to go back to that in a second or maybe after the break and read some extracts from it. But fundamentally, Santolki, we are, we have grown up primarily in the 21st century, right? For the majority of our lives. And we have the benefit, therefore, have, and I call this a benefit, it's going to sound weird, but we have the benefit 
of never really having seen the West Indies be good, apart from that kind of four-year period between 2012 and 2016 when we dominated T20 cricket. Largely speaking, our lives associated with West Indies cricket is one of failure, right? In that, and the reason, again, why I say that's a benefit is we are able to see how what our forefathers and foremothers, the cultural context of what West Indies meant to them in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and even possibly the early 90s, I do not believe that that context exists anymore in 2022. From maybe from a maybe from a nostalgic level, I look, we love to use oblique references on on our on our podcast and talkie. But for those who like wrestling, here's another wrestling here's another wrestling reference. When Hulk Hogan or any wrestling legend comes back and shows their face at like a WrestleMania or something, they get a nostalgia pop. Right. So if Hulk Hogan or The Undertaker or Stone Cold Steve Austin, Bret Hart, people that you have all grown up with, if you even are like a casual wrestling fan, when they turn up at WrestleMania, people click the link Santoki and they'll remember what it was like when they were running wild over everybody. But everyone also recognizes that that time has gone. That's what I think. That's where we're at now. That's where we're at. And the meaning of what West Indies once was, we're nothing more now than a nostalgia act. And I don't know if that is enough to keep us going in the in the global context that cricket has become. So, so what are you saying? We're we're like WCW in in nineteen ninety nine. It's just it's all chaos at the moment. No one knows what's going on. But I think I think you make excellent points there, Mash. Um, it's interesting. Our reference we've had on our Caribbean cricket podcast, David Woodhouse, who, who wrote an excellent book, Who Only Cricket Know, about when England toured the West Indies in nineteen fifty four, and it's interesting because it. In those days, in the 50s, there was a distance between the islands and people didn't travel between the islands. Every island had their own culture, community. Um, and when they did pick the test side, depending on who was the host, you had a selection panel who primarily picked players from those islands. So it was essentially distinct entities, each island. And they kind of came together because West Indies was the only vessel to sort of prove Caribbean kind of strength and unity by facing off in England. So it was like a begrudging alliance. I just think, as you said, times have changed politically, economically. Um, the links, the kind of, we're not, as, we're far removed from the sort of colonial era now. It's gone 60, 70 years for a lot of islands. I just think that kind of motivation to kind of link and put everything put everything aside and kind of link in terms of a West Indian identity to kind of motivate yourself to come together as this group it has sort of weakened with um with the new with the new players coming through just because we are so far removed from those days of the 50s and the 60s now a lot of i know a few prime ministers in the caribbean have come out and said what needs to happen is younger people in the caribbean need to be educated about colonial times and history and the history of west indies cricket and what it meant for players do you think an education program at, at younger age groups would benefit this sort of course for west indies cricket or do you think it's just far gone we just sort of need to move on with the times I've read, I've read some of the, the kind of statements coming out from the different prime ministers, but here's my criticism of that, Santoki. That's like, that's like our parents' generation trying to lecture us about, remember the time when we had no phones, we had no mobile phones yeah. and life was better. Time's moved on. Time's moved on, man. And now that, that's no disrespect to the olders. And you and I will be olders one day. And... Like, like time, time moves on for a reason. I'm not, and the thing is, people take me wrong here. I'm not saying West Indies doesn't have value. 
But again, we have value like the royal family has value in in the UK. Like we're we're like a we're like the Harlem Globetrotters. We're we're yeah. we're, we're we're like a um we're we're like a tourism act. Like we we still our aura is bigger than our actual ability. If that yeah. makes sense. Now the question mark for me is because of our aura and our history. Is the tradition of that enough to just keep limping on? Now, disclaimer, I want us to keep limping on, but I also acknowledge that we may be reaching, like, I don't know, Santo, the last 10, 15 years of, of this being a viable institution. That's, that's, that's a powerful line. I think we're going to have to take a break, and when we're back, we'll talk a bit more about whether West Indies cricket should disband. Hi, I'm Nikesh Raghani, commentator and host of the India on 99.94 podcast. Several times each week, my co-host Sara Waris and I will be bringing you the very best in Indian cricket chat. Whether we're discussing the legend of Julan Goswami, KL Rahul's strike rate, the men's T20 death bowling woes, or the latest controversy involving the BCCI, we've got you covered. You can listen and subscribe via your usual podcast provider. Just search for India on 99. You can watch us via YouTube and you can download the 99.94 app. If you love Indian cricket, then join our conversation. Okay, we're we're back from a break, and I think I'd also like to clarify as well that I I would like to see West Indies carry on. But as Michelle, you rightly pointed out, limping on could be the key word. And I think going into this World Cup is a classic example. West Indies at the World Cup, but it almost invoked images of us playing, you know, powerful cricket, hitting big score sixes, not taking into account the actual players we had. So the brand was essentially bigger than the composition of the team. And this is probably why West Indies will be able to sustain itself, just because of that brand and that imagery. But as you said, we're already starting to see um, hints at where the future is going. If we take, for example, a Shafane Rutherford, young player in the peak of his career, has never even indicated he wants to play for West Indies cricket in the last three years, not put any effort in. I know we've seen, obviously, Hetmeyer and Narayan, but they've indicated that sometimes publicly um, that they want to play for West Indies or return to West Indies cricket team. Shafane Rutherford is someone who is essentially separate from West Indies cricket at the moment. He's happy playing franchise cricket, as far as we know. He's never made any attempts to get back into the West Indies cricket side. There's obviously been fitness issues, but there's never really been a sense that he really wants to get back into the West Indies side um, after three years. And this is his, as I said, it's his peak age. Do you think we're going to see more and more of that from the younger generation, the players who, you know, become exclusively on the franchise circuit and aren't actually motivated to wear the maroon? Now, this that this is a very good argument, Santelki. A very good, sorry, a very good point you've raised because it's almost like a what came first, the chicken or the egg scenario. Because what catapult, what catapulted, sorry, Shafane Rutherford to the level he is? Did he need West Indies to get where he was, or did he benefit from a CPL? I'd love to. We need to go back and study what yeah. got him to be who he is. What got Fabian Allen to be who he is? What got Shimon Hetmeyer to be who he is? So, in one sense, and I, by the way, am saying that it's still West Indies cricket. And we, our last episode, we spoke about how it's interesting that at least ten West Indians have potentially lost their IPL contracts, right? And may have to come cap in hand back to West Indies cricket. So all the while, these players need West Indies cricket to get noticed. We're still technically important. My issue is, once they get noticed, how soon is it before they they don't come back? So the, here will be the, here's where the catch will come, Santoki. 
we we haven't yet reached a stage where we have like a devold brevis who almost can bypass playing for South Africa to now just do T20. We haven't technically got a player like that yet. Maybe I'm missing someone obvious out, but we haven't got a player like that yet who can bypass West Indies and just go straight into T20 franchise leagues. So I still think in some way the players still need West Indies before they then dump them. Mm. It's interesting because a counter argument could obviously be now we've seen different franchise leagues spread across the world and they're all sort of linked. So the Mumbai Indians own a, a, a South African team, a UA league. We've seen with Brevis, he's been put into a training camp and he was with the Mumbai Indians tour in England over the summer. So essentially, Mumbai Indians have become that replacement for South Africa in terms of developing him. So if that's going to be the case, will we see more West Indian players signed up at a young age for franchises on year-long contracts, put into training camps, play across various leagues under the banner of a franchise? So for me, franchise cricket could replace the job that West Indies cricket has been doing in terms of developing players. And that would be that would not be a great look for West Indies because essentially, as you said, our main selling point is we can develop players and build that platform for them. And obviously at the moment we're having issues with maintaining those, maintaining those players. But if we're not even able to develop players ahead of franchises, players aren't going to commit to West Indies. What, what is the reward? And we've obviously seen Will Smead in England um, take a few headlines for quote unquote retiring from first class cricket before even playing a first class game. We've sort of, I mean, nobody's officially retired from first-class cricket, but if you take a Nicholas Puran, he's only played, what, five first-class games in his whole career so far. He's 26 years old. So essentially, he's skipped first-class cricket to kind of hone his skills in franchise cricket and now white ball cricket for West Indies. So it just looks it just looks matched up with the looming threat of franchise cricket, not just for West Indies, but for most nations in the world. It's going to be a threat in terms of player commitment two countries, but I just think West Indies is the most vulnerable just because whereas the South Africa and England are a sole nation who can kind of use patriotism, as we as we mentioned on part one and two, what does West Indies mean to be uh, to players as as an entity? Do we are we able to attract players through patriotism alone? Boy. <laughs> well, do you know what actually Santoki, before I answer that, because actually what you said there is a perfect point at which to introduce my, my next uh, piece of evidence. But let's come to that piece of evidence after the break. I'm Neil Manthorpe, one half of South Africa on 99.94 with Rungani Zama. We're covering the Rainbow Nation as it undergoes its biggest transition since readmission. We cover every part of the South African game on 99.94 and you can hear us several times a week where you find your podcasts or on YouTube. So Santoki, a couple of episodes ago, I mentioned Chris Darin and I'm going to read you a quite lengthy extract. Give me about two to three minutes to read it and then I want you to just give me your analysis of it, Santoki. So if, and those listening along, if you need like a pad and a pen, get it out to write down your points before you start commenting back at us or commenting below if you're watching on YouTube. So Chris Deering, as I said a couple of episodes back, is the former WICB Chief Marketing Executive and CEO um, of the ICC Cricket World Cup in uh, 2007. Sorry, And Chris wrote the following article in the Jamaica Observer, Santoki, and I'm going to read you this part of it. And for those who want the article, do let me know and I'll send it to them. So get ready, Santoki. I'm going to read you three paragraphs. There is, to state the obvious, no nation called the West Indies. No national team can compete in the modern paradigm of professional sports without a national production line, structure, and most importantly, resources. 
But Caribbean governments can't justify investing in this institution without obvious national or political benefit to be derived. Neither is there a proper professional cricket infrastructure. We have a semblance of one, but there is no managed production line from kindergarten to the pros. Every other county playing international cricket has one or the other or both. They are able and have invested greater resources than us over the past 30 years, and it's paying off. The resource gap is mammoth and only growing larger. We can scoff at Ireland beating us because of ignorance, but Ireland has the second highest GDP in Europe, and it is a full-paying member of the ICC, not the associate that they, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh once were. They are centrally contracted professional cricketers in a first-class league. They've beaten Pakistan and England and us before, and will cause one or two more jitters in this tournament for sure, which they did because they beat England. They're ranked 12th, and West Indies are ranked 7th. To give a football comparison, would we be shocked if 12th-ranked Croatia beat 7th-ranked Spain in the World Cup? Don't underestimate the rise of sport in other countries through their investment, even as our own lack of investment sends us sliding. No one argues that Man City, Real Madrid, or indeed Ireland have that clear resource advantage in football. Perhaps the aberration of West Indies cricket dominance in the past and the occasional flicker of hope blinds us to reality. But let me clarify what I refer to as resources. It is not simply money to throw at the national team, though the absence is self-evident. Take a Scottish or an Irish-born cricketer. From an early age, he's provided with national resources simply because of the wealth of the country and the proximity and availability of grade, first-class and professional cricket. There's a professional sports industry from which to draw experienced sports administrators, the facilities, coaches and general training facilities available from elementary school to first-class cricket contradicts any description as amateurs. Indeed, they are amateur only insofar as their comparison to the highly paid professionals in the ECB. Both Scotland and Ireland have their own well-developed cricket leagues that make our tournament seem impoverished with broadcast television deals, sponsorship, etc. Investment in Irish cricket has increased year after year by Sports Ireland since their success in the 2007 World Cup. And, and I'm going to actually pause because I could, could go on, but I think you'll get the point. There's so much more in the article, but I think you get the point that he's getting at there, Santolki. And for those listening, I hope you carried on listening along. It's quite lengthy. That's only three paragraphs of about 12 paragraphs in that article, Santolki. What do you make of it? What do you make of that argument, Santoli? Well, it's, it's a very well-structured and um, reasoned argument. I think, firstly, the first, the first issue he raises is, obviously, as we've seen, governments tend to promote sports purely because it's publicity for the nation and for their government. So Jamaica being a classic example, promoting, investing a lot of money in athletics and even the reggae boys football team in the 90s to get to the World Cup. It wasn't because, I mean, part of it was because they want to see them perform in those sports. But the main reason is the publicity and the PR it gets for that government and the nation to exporting the identity of that nation around the world. Now, if you're Guyanese and you develop, uh, let's say you develop a Shimon Hetmeyer, you put them through the structure and the system, they get to 18 where are they going to excel? Is, is it going to be playing for the Guyana team? Is Guyana going to be exported around the world? No, it's going to be for West Indies. So I think that article made a good point that where is the motivation for governments to invest in players from their island when the end result will be them flourishing for an entity which isn't specifically associated with the name of that country? So if Hetmeyer does well for West Indies, West Indies, the brand is strengthened, but Guyana as a nation isn't strengthened in terms of that. So I can kind of see that dynamic is very, very interesting one he's raised in terms of there's no motivation for government 
to invest the resources in a national structure because there's no payoff at the end of it, essentially. They're playing for another entity. And this is where West Indies are unique. Obviously, if you're England, Australia, South Africa, you'll develop players because the end game will be they'll play for England national team, the, te- the test team, the ODI side, or South Africa, and your nation is promoted. So that's the first issue we have, which is unique to kind of West Indies in the region. And the second one is a very valid point. As much as we consider Ireland's minnows, for instance, or Scotland minnows, it's only in cricket, or based on history, we do that. In any other, in any <laughs> other aspect of economics, what, why would Guyana or Jamaica call Scotland or Ireland minnows? Their GDP is a lot higher than us. <laughs> They're more developed than us. They have a, a bigger, they have bigger populations, especially with Guyana, what seven hundred thousand. The island has a much, much bigger population. So, in every other aspect of life, they wouldn't be considered minnows. So why are we still considering them minnows in terms of cricket? Because based on every other aspect of life, they can invest more and have resources and have the structure to develop cricket players compared to the Caribbean. So essentially, it's almost delusional for us to call other nations minnows because our economics means we're always going to be minnows and our population size means we're always going to have to punch above our weight to excel on the world stage. We're basing our strength on history, which is a long time ago, 30, 40 years ago. So those are the main two things I took. I mean, there's a lot to take from the article, but those are two key points I took from it. Now, Mesh, West Indies, if West Indies is going to be around, we're not... As much as fans are calling for individual nations to kind of represent themselves, so Guyana to start playing test cricket or Trinidad and Tobago to start playing test cricket, <laughs> realistically, that's never going to happen. So how do you change that? If there's no motivation for governments to kind of produce players with a national structure and streamline it, how do you ever get around that? Or are we just destined to always have a chaotic development system in the West Indies? <laughs> All right, listen, we, we called the episode Should West Indies dis- Disband? On a, it's an actual like all jokes aside it's a very serious question because <laughs> <laughs> I, I go back to what I kind of said at the top of the show we're, we're living in a we're living in a global world now like globalization man in all other industries we recognize this idea of globalization cricket still has this kind of antiquated view about like t20 is part of globalization right we're just Let's call it as it is, Santoki. We're not fit for purpose. We're not in a global world. We're not fit for purpose. Um, and like, <laughs> there's a point. Uh, I didn't get down to the point, but there's a point that Chris makes where he said recently, Cricket West Indies president made a gift of one bowling machine <laughs> <laughs> to a Caribbean country. The sort of basic equipment that any cricket club and probably school in Ireland or Scotland might already have five or six of. <laughs> and the thing is, whilst that may or may not be an exaggeration, it's true though, because I remember reading that article, I can't. I think it might be in St. Lucia, where there was like a picture of Skerritt with whoever, maybe the Prime Minister or whoever, saying, oh, here's two bowling machines. And I was thinking, rah, that's a major thing. <laughs> and then, do you remember that test match? Uh, was it last year when Pakistan toured us in Jamaica and there was a wet outfield and the Jamaican groundsmen were using sponges to, to, to soak up the field? And I was watching it on BT Sport thinking, this is where we're at, though. <laughs> like this. And then people are expecting all of that is part of the same ecosystem of underdevelopment, right? And as you kind of say, Santoki, it's only history it's only the aura and the tra- the tradition and the history of who we once were that keeps people believing we're still we're, we're still up there. But fundamentally, mm-hmm. and I kind of end with this: 
let's say we do disband and let's say the global forces almost force the situation for West Indies to disband. Here's why I think everybody from the respective islands and nations are silly. Because if the West Indies do disband, then we'd have to start going through like those global qualifying leagues and all of that. But even with the raw talent that a Guyana or a Jamaica or a Barbados might have, etc., do you genuinely believe, Santolki, that those teams would then be able to go through global qualifiers, beat teams like Nepal, Nepal and Hong Kong and UAE and then the United States? And do you think, I just think we'd just be at that level. The best mm. of the, the best of the island teams would just be at that level. And I know the people from BIM will say, yeah, but eight of the test team are, are all Barbadians. So Barbados would be strong. Well, I mean, okay, but effectively, the best of our island teams would be probably the equivalent of what the Netherlands. If if we're lucky, Listen, if we're lucky, right, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you an example. Yeah, if all right, if if we went separate, Jamaica get through now to ODI qualifiers. They're going to the Netherlands. Alwyn Williams in the middle order. Dennis Bulai <laughs> bowling. <laughs> You think they're taking a win against Netherlands? Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Leeway Lug opening, yeah? Is that you? Is that Leeway Lug situation in Amsterdam, yeah? Is that going to happen? Listen, let's just stay together as West Indies, man. It's long, it's long. I think, you know what? I think a good example is, if you look at the differences with CPL, where it is individual islands, if you look at how much governments invest in terms of the PR and what they invest in the resources for CPL, there is a market difference, and that's why you get the big crowds in CPL. Um, so there is an argument that obviously governments will invest more and put more into individual their own individual nation island if there wasn't a West Indies entity. But as you said, we're restricted in terms of population and economics. There's only so much you'll be able to get from an individual island and nation. So with West Indies, it's always going to be a case of strength in numbers. The strongest will ever be is as an entity. But it's kind of getting that foundation underneath. How do we develop structure and a pathway for players to excel in the West Indies, which is going to be the big question. And it's a long-term one we'll need to address. Listen, I'm going to end with this, Santoki. I have the solution. The ECB should allow a West Indies A-team to play in their domestic competitions. How about that? We'd get smashed, by the way. We'd get smashed by every single team. But that's how I see this going forward, that we're, that we send a group, an A side to go play in other competitions. And those players would have to forego some kind of potential T20 contracts maybe, and just go that's the, because if we know the current system doesn't work, we're going to have to start thinking outside the box. Yeah. Well, this is, this is the thing that's always confused me. We always see from major nations, um, commentators, analysts, former players, current players, always saying it's so sad to see West Indies decline. Cricket needs a strong West Indies. But what is that? What has cricket actually done in recent years <laughs> to ensure there's a cricket to ensure there's a strong West Indies? They've essentially kicked us while we're down by implementing a system that we don't benefit from. So I would like to see actions be put in in terms of it wouldn't be hard to have a West Indies A team and emerging side play in England. That's the only way we're going to develop. But as we know, Mash, for various reasons, it probably will never happen, and we'll be left to sort of fend for ourselves. And, you know, the, the superficial comments will keep coming that it's sad to see West Indies decline without any actual assistance from the international cricket community. And I think that's also where the problem lies. Yeah, mo- most definitely. And we started with Rahul Dravid's comments, so maybe we'll leave with Dra- Rahul Dravid's comments 
Rahul Dravid says he doesn't want India to go down the route of ending up like West Indies. And that effectively equates to the point you're making. So it's somebody recognizing and feeling sad for what we've become. But he ain't offering us any solutions, just like nobody else ain't offering us any solutions. So you know what? If people ain't going to offer any meaningful solutions, maybe it's time we just disbanded. Ladies and gents, <laughs> that's been another episode of West Indies on 99.94 DM. Tantoki, it's goodbye from me. Is it goodbye from you? Yeah, it's a, it's a goodbye for me. And hopefully it's not a goodbye for West Indies cricket. But we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers every episode of double down with Breslow is packed with insider tips deeply skilled analysis and in-depth discussions don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting listen to double down with Breslow on the evergreen podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts that's double down with Breslow the business of sports betting podcast